The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Going Global, a business is boring pop-up series brought to you by New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. NZTE wants to help more Kiwi businesses reach their global potential. Visit getthere.nz to find out more. And now, here are your hosts, Brianne West and Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa and welcome to Going Global, a special pop-up series where we meet some of Aotearoa's most successful and inspiring exporters to find out the secrets to their success and bust some myths along the way. I'm Brianne West and I've been a guest on Business is Boring with my company, Atik, and I'm joining the incredible Simon Pound, who is my co-host to explore everything export. Uh-huh. It's awesome to have someone here who's actually done the work of taking a company to the world. With Atik's concentrated beauty products, now in more than 6,500 stores around the world. And that's what we're here to discuss with this podcast. What does it take to take ideas overseas, and what's holding some people back from exporting. We've found some really interesting facts that tell us that although there have been great moves in the general New Zealand business scene, our exporters are still looking a bit more traditional, a bit paler, a bit maler, and not capturing all the creativity of the local scene. So we're here to ask, why is this? What does it take to export, and how can we change this? We're speaking to six great exporters over six weeks to find out, like our guest today, Karen Walker. Karen Walker has been selling ideas and fashion to the world for almost 35 years, helping to put this country on the map as a place great design products and partnerships could come from. Karen's built her brand and credibility for our design scene more generally through years of showing at New York Fashion Week, working with some of the world's best brands, and by launching export-friendly and world-storming products like sunglasses, jewellery and perfume. Karen Walker joins us now to talk the journey, what it takes, and how things are going today. Tanakwe, thank you for being here. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Really awesome to meet you. Very excited to speak with you. So my first question is a nice juicy big one. How did you actually get started exporting? Well, there were three reasons. Or... Well, um maybe even four or five reasons we wanted to export. One, that it was the only way we could grow our business, you know, a very niche product um, in the early days and still now, I think. Uh, and New Zealand's only so big. So if we wanted to grow our business, it was made more sense for us to be a global niche product than a mass market local. <laughs> it was kind of the alternative. We travelled, when I say we, I'm talking about myself and our creative director, my co-founder, my husband, Mikhail, yeah, we travelled in the very early days of the business and looked at what was happening out there in the world. And I'm talking, yeah, when I was nine, 18, 19, 20 years old and seeing the world for the first time as an ad, as a young adult. And we just, you know, saw what it was like, saw what the fashion business was like, what culture was like, what creativity was like. And we just thought we want to be part of that type of thinking and part of that type of community. And, you know, New Zealand fashion at the time, you know, the majority of it was just knockoffs, like buying trips to wherever and bring it back and knock it off. And it kind of didn't ever interest us that much. We wanted to be part of it and of the industry in a, in a real way, in an authentic way, in a way that was driven by creativity that we were seeing in those, um, you know, London, New York, wherever. And that meant the ideas had to be really good. The class had to be good. And, and fashion became a platform for ideas, not just the season's colours and whatever was being knocked off for whatever. And also we knew very early on that by focusing on the global market, 
rather than just on our local market, it would force us to be harder on ourselves in terms of the quality of the, quality of the ideas. So it spoke to us as creatives wanting to be the very best we could, set the bar higher, frankly. Mm. So it, was kind of, it wasn't so much about business. It was really just about uh, sort of an overall strategy around our brand pillars and where our passions were. Yeah. And that was around ideas. And there was some some romance to it. You know, it wasn't kind of terribly planned out. And then on a kind of more selfish level, I just travel's in my heart. It's in my DNA. And I just wanted my job to have travel be a very much a part of it. And I wasn't going to get that without wanting to stretch into that market and be part of it. So safe to say it was very early on in your journey that you started very, exploring. Very, like year one, year two. Very early on, that was the dream. Mm. It's really interesting because I was taught conventional business wisdom 101, don't go offshore until you're profitable in your home country, which I personally don't agree with. And But back then I was naive and I swallowed everything. So it's very it's very interesting that that's where you started is immediately going offshore. Oh, well, the trick there is I never learned anything about business. <laughs> <laughs> Probably Except what smart. I learned myself in, doing, in there doing it. <laughs> Tell us about the kind of things that you did to build up your your reputation as a place that ideas could come from um, and, and f- that New Zealand could be a place that ideas could come from. As uh, If people have followed fashion for a while, they'll know that while you were showing at New York Fashion Week, you know, your shows would be on the front page of Vogue.com, you know, like at the absolute top of the interest level, at the what was the, you know, pinnacle of, of the fashion world. And things have changed a little bit with the way that fashion finds its way to the world now. Mm. But tell us about, you know, what what it actually took to build up a name in in something that is about ideas. Never settling for close enough is good enough. Always pushing yourself and knowing where it is you want to sit, knowing who you want to be compared to in terms of quality of ideas and not settling for anything less. You know, lots of late nights and do it again, do it again until we've got it where we want it to be. And, and stepping out into it even when it's scary. But if you want to be in the game, you've got to be in the game. So that's why you know, we showed, I think we showed London Fashion Week eight seasons and New York Fashion Week 20 seasons before technology meant that that model was no longer relevant. Thank God, because I like having my summers in New Zealand. <laughs> but, you know, you just got to get out there and do it. And at that time, that was the way in which you did it in this business. But you've got to be at a certain level to get great reviews on style.com or vogue.com or whatever the platform to be on the front page of the New York Times during Fashion Week. Uh, you know, you've got to, you don't just get to phone it in or do some half-assed version of. And as you were saying that the technology's changed uh, how you go to the world, like logistically it must have been remarkably challenging to be running Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere Mm. approaches at the same time in order to be able to be an exporter. Has that changed Mm. up in the way that you approach exporting as a business? Yes, well, it's much easier now. You know, we started exporting to uh, Australia, I guess, I don't know, mid-90s, and then into Northern Hemisphere, I guess, late-90s we started. And so when we went, when we did that move, we suddenly had to think about Northern Hemisphere versus Southern Hemisphere, as well as the logistics of getting the product there, time differences, you know, all that kind of stuff was pre-internet, pre-email, I think, you know, from memory. Um, and, you know, everything, when you look back at it now, it's like, oh, my God, what a grind. But that was just what you had to do. Um, and yeah, certainly, yeah, the seasons were were tricky. You had to do a winter and a summer, um, which you know just is 
people just don't do anymore. And, yeah, so, the, yeah, that was difficult. And also at, I think the other, you know, those are the logis- logistical and the functional difficulties, but I think the, one of the biggest challenges and, and probably why nobody had been bonkers enough to try doing it before us was that fashion then, it was like if it wasn't from Milan or Paris or London or New York if you squinted, you know, it wasn't fashion. If you weren't from a certain family or went to a certain school or lived in a certain city or it worked your way up through years of whatever house, uh, who the hell were you? And, you know, when we came into it, Japan had only been on the scene as a fashion, home of fashion for a very short time. The, you know, Antwerp, ditto. And so this, this idea of fashion coming from somewhere other than Milan or Paris, thank you very much, uh, was very new. And somebody coming from New Zealand... <laughs> I was like, what? Uh, you know, now anybody can do anything from anywhere and that's just what we know and accept and love and this whole generation or generations who have never known anything different. But, you know, I'm very old now. So I remember when it was like the sort of snobbishness around it, around where uh, fashion came from and it probably extended into the art world, or the film world or whatever as well, I expect. And so we were up against that and just kind of got on with it and did it anyway by just doing work that we were proud of and and showing up and not having it be a big drama. Like, oh, my God, I'm so jet lagged. Like, I never, ever bitched about the jet lag to anyone in my life because you just I just always wanted it to be, uh, you know, really effortless. It was effortful for me, but I wanted it to appear effortless. And the New Zealandness, yeah, I think there was a snobbishness against people coming in from anywhere. But we kind of brought our New Zealandness to the table in... Uh, our sort of can-do attitude and a sort of a little bit of a of a wink with everything that we did. And I think that that was perhaps what connected with people. Yeah, and although you don't have to go to, you know, do a really traditional fashion um, week kind of approach to those markets, how do you turn up in those markets today to uh, extend the brand and to build partnerships and to launch and back products? Like, what's the what's the approach today? Well, today there are no borders, which makes things really you know, harder in some ways and easier in others. But it always comes down to the ideas. Fashion has always just been a platform for ideas for us. And whatever we do, it's uh, you know, whatever it is, making the product or telling the story or presenting the product in, in the store, whether it's a virtual store or bricks and mortar, it's always that with creativity wrapped around it fully. It's never like there's no add-on. It's, it's always the creativity comes first and whatever it is the task is, creating a product, telling a story, et cetera, it has to come from a place of creativity first. There's no she'll be right or do it like they did it or taking it off a Pinterest board. <laughs> it's got to be 100% intrinsic to what we do. And right now how we show up to people uh, internationally is um, partly virtually and partly in store. Uh, you know, in, in, in real time, we do still have bricks and mortar wholesale accounts, but uh, most of our exporting is from our own .com, which is fantastic. When it's online, you can control the message and, and the story and, 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 and what everything else. And everything else. You can. Yeah. And there was, there was a, you know, at one point before the internet is what we know and love it to be today, bricks and mortar uh, exporting was very important. At one point, we had a thousand doors. And it was like, it was all about the number of doors and how big a reach you could get in that way. And then the internet happened. I don't know even when this was. Well, when was this? Like 10 (laughs) 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 15 years ago? I can't even remember. But, you know, it was like uh, uh, seismic plates coming together. 
And really, they were so opposite and there was such tension. So you had bricks and mortar wholesale doors on one hand, uh, .com, whether it be the mothership, whether it's our .com or somebody else's on the other, coming together and coming from such different rules. And how it showed, the pain points showed up the most in that suddenly there was one market. So before that, you'd had, oh, Japan prices like this and the UK prices like that and and the US is pricing like that and they just do whatever they want to do. Buy the product, sell it, whatever you want to sell it at, put it on sale if you want to put it on sale. Suddenly all that was visible. So, yeah, there was like a good couple of years, I think, while the entire um, industry, and I'm sure it wasn't limited just to the fashion business, was realigning to what does this look like? So you can't have... 10 different stores in 10 different markets selling the same product at completely different prices and there's some ding-dong over there discounting it because they're not good retailers. Because everything is seen by everybody else. And guess what? Google likes to push up the best price. So, you know, uh, so I think there was a lot of realigning while uh, our industry, I'm sure others, got their heads around that and just thinking globally from day one. And then if, if there's bricks and mortar, fine. If there's different... Physical stores in different physical countries, fine. If there's different online retailers in different places, fine. But everybody's more or less playing to the same rules so that you don't get anybody freaking out. And and the and, to, and also it took away the seasons. Seasons, schmeasons, you know? Like if we want to talk about seasons, that's fine. Our, our EDM can target people in the United States one week and Australia the next. And, and we can use the seasonal thing to our advantage and, mar- and market and tell our stories around that. But we're not having to go, here's winter coats. <laughs> Because <laughs> guess what? People buy winter coats all year round mm. and people buy skinny singlets all year round. It's so much more personalised and adaptable yeah. now and so much easier. Oh, so how no. important is bricks and mortar to you then? I mean, you say most of it's online, but I mean, is bricks and mortar still a chunk of the business, something you want to get rid of? No, bricks and mortar is still important to us. You know, and We've got it in two forms. We've got our, our own stores. We've got four bricks and mortar stores and they're very important to us. They've, uh, they work as a part of the business. They're profitable. They do the job, but they also work as billboards. They work as experiences uh, and hand in hand with online. And um, we will never get rid of them, but we'll probably never open more either. Mm. And they do something online, can't do and vice versa. And they, they work together and benefit one another. And then wholesale bricks and mortar stores or, or dot-coms, um, they still have a place too. But they're not the big piece of the pie they once were because the industry has changed. Mm. And guess what? Barney's shut down, you know, which is really sad, but it shut down and so did others. Um, so we're just in a, in a new landscape. But, you know, Harvey Nichols is really important for us for our fragrance in the UK. And, you know, David Jones for our eyewear in, in Sydney if people want to go into store and try it on there. So, you know, um, uh, and yeah, we have stores in, all around the world still, but less than there were because that's just not the model and that's not how people shop anymore. And a lot of stores have gone. Mm. But yes. there is still a place for it. And I, I really think of it re- just in terms of serving our community in a way that we can't otherwise. So, yeah, there's a store in, uh, you know, Arrowtown, a gorgeous store there called Angel Divine that we sell our ready to wear too and, and also jewellery, I think, eyewear and, and other things. We're not in Arrowtown physically 365 days a year, but we can be through a partner store like that. And they do a job for us that we can't do otherwise, et cetera. So anyway, there lots of examples of that. So it's the one that came to mind. But um, yeah, I think of them not that uh, relationship as their partners. They're not stockists, mm. which is uh, it's a nice such way a revolting term. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Or, or doors, you know, they're 
they're our partners and they're helping us to do it to serve their community and grow and, your brand, build it. Yeah. 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 But, you know, it's not really, it's partly about that, but not really because our brand kind of. It's tech. already built. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> already built. But there. it's really about serving that community in a, in a way that we couldn't otherwise and working with partner stores, whoever it might be, Harvey Nichols or whoever, mm. to do that. Yeah. Tell us about the way that you work with some of these stores overseas as things like the eyewear where, um, you know, there have been these wonderful in-store installations like the sunglass bar that travelled the world to some of these great stores and kind of helped you just completely stand out from what could be a very generic experience with sunglasses on a wall of mirrors or something. How mm. do you kind of um, design your products and design the experiences um, to help your products jump out even if you're not in the same market as them to be able to support them all the time? Well, that just speaks back to what I was saying earlier about every element of the business has to be wrapped up in creativity 100%. So the candy bar display unit you were talking about where that we that travelled the world for a good five or six years in different stores that we sold to um, for a standalone sort of eyewear experience, um, that was just about how do we merchandise really well? You know, the store has beautiful fittings. It's Barney's or it's Neiman Marcus or whatever. They've already got perfectly gorgeous fittings. But how do we, you know, we can do something kind of really interesting that they could have for three weeks and, and then it gets packed down into like a pack and crate, you know, like, like bands use and sent off to the next store. That's just about thinking creatively at, at every level. Building on that is how do you choose, you, you talk about them as partners, how do you choose who you want to partner with in various markets? Uh, obviously, you're aiming at a certain end of the market, Barney's and Neiman Marcus and, and stuff. How do you choose? Do you go along with like a list of values? Is creativity got to be paramount, obviously? How do you select them? Yeah, it's all of that. You know, it's, uh, is there a gap in the region? Yeah, we've never, not in the habit of firing accounts because somebody prettier came along. <laughs> you, know, you dance with the one who brought you. And, Loyalty. Um, yes, the people have to be, I mean, my first rule is would I have them around to dinner? Mm, good know? rule. Do I like I them? That. Yeah. And is there a sandwich board outside with 50% off written on it? No. Okay, that's another good start. Is there, you know, what does the store look like? Does it smell good when I walk in? Yeah, it's just, it's just that. We don't have a – we're not one of those brands that has like a formalised tick list or anything. It's just, are they nice people? Does the store look nice? Do they have other good product? Does it feel good? Does it feel right? Yeah. Nice. Oh, and some of the partnerships, one of the ways that you have taken the brand to the world um, – you know, has been by partnering with existing brands and spaces and, you know, meeting their audiences and, and doing kind of cool things together. Can you tell us about that as a, as a strategy and how that helps you, um, yeah, how that helps you develop other markets or meet other people? Yeah, you know, I'm a big believer in one plus one equals three, if you do it right. And see, I never went to business school. <laughs> 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 but, you know, if, any collaboration should be greater than the sum of its parts. And if it's not, then you're doing it wrong. One of, one of you is not pulling their weight or both of you. <laughs> and we choose collaborative partners more or less in the same way that we choose stores that we're happy to partner with. Does it feel right? Do we like them? Are they making a good product? Are they nice people? Are they, have they got their shit together, you know? And then just work intuitively. And sometimes those partnerships are really big, like Disney, who are quite big. Okay. And sometimes they're really little, like like Luke the glass blower in Avondale, who we did some beautiful glassware with last Christmas and, and again for the coming Christmas. And anything in between. And sometimes they're long they're sometimes that we repeat and they're long term, like we've just I think on our sixth winter with Blunt, doing a Blunt Caramel Umbrella. And other times it's in and out. 
But we just think creatively. There's no set rules. Like, does it feel right? Are they the right? Is it the right kind of product? Is it something our customers will want? Because ultimately, we're just here to serve our community. So if we think it's something our customers will like and we're excited about, then we do it. And if we don't think there's a room, room for it in our customers' lives, then don't worry about it. Don't waste people's time. So, uh, yes, it's 99% of the decision-making in my business is intuitive. I do love a spreadsheet, and we back it up with the data and the facts, but it's a lot of it's about fear. Best way to make decisions. Yeah. <laughs> and coming up, we'll be back in a moment to talk about the challenges on the road to export, what it means to be an exporter, and to get some insights into the most important things to know if you're thinking about going global. We said earlier that exporting looks a lot more like the old traditional New Zealand business. What does that mean, Brian? I mean, it's bananas that women are seriously underrepresented when it comes to export. Around 28% of our goods companies in Aotearoa are led by women. But when we look at goods exporters, that number drops to 15%. What could it do for New Zealand if all of the cool, or even just more of the cool women-led companies in this country did get to exporting. Just imagine, New Zealand Trade and Enterprise wants to support more people to reach their global potential. So if you're a woman in business and this korero has got you thinking about what you have to offer beyond our borders, get in touch with NZTE. To find out how they can help you get there, head to getthere.nz forward slash woman. We're here with Karen Walker discussing exporting, which is something New Zealand needs more of, but in an interesting twist. Not everyone who's selling overseas thinks of themselves as an exporter, and as a result, they're not necessarily getting the help they could to grow like they could. It's a really interesting kind of question. Did you always think of yourself as an exporter, Karen? Like, I know you sold to the world from day one, but yeah, what did you, did you think of yourself like an exporter? Yeah, I think I did. Yeah. Our first international wholesale, it had to be wholesale then because it was pre-internet, sale was to Australia, to a store in Australia. And yeah, I did think of myself as an exporter from that moment. Yeah. Hmm. That's so cool. And I I know you've always had that view of like wanting to sell to the world and be part of the the conversation in these places. Hmm. Like how do you go about doing that as a business, like how do you go about making, um, you know, understanding what the conversation is there and understanding your part? I think the big thing for me was to always go there, just be amongst it, which you could remember was actually, that was the whole reason why we were wanting to export, to give us an excuse to go there and be amongst it and meet great people and be in the environment and walk around New York City and, and whatnot. Um, that was part of the, really the, the thrust of it, you know, very much so. And uh, I've always loved being in there and, and you know, going there and soaking it up and seeing our product out on the street and, and meeting people. And some of my closest friends are people I've met through my work that, and the travel element of my work. And yeah, it's just finding those people you connect with. And sometimes you have false starts. Sometimes it's just, oh, you know, sometimes it's a bit of a square peg in a round hole and then you find your home and it and it's all great. And yeah, there's, there are Partners we've worked with internationally where our partnership lasted 10, 15 years or longer and friendships that have lasted 25 years or more that, I've, that I only got through my international business. But I do remember we, we had an agent, we had a sales agency in Australia 
in Sydney and a sales and press agency. And then we were approached by a sales agency in New York, and this was like, uh, I don't know, 2000 or something. And they were like, hey, we'd really like you to, uh, you know, to represent you. And, and we thought about it, and I rang the back and I went, look, you know, love the idea, but we're not quite ready. And Simon goes, you'll never be ready. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah, probably not. So we just did it. And within a week of sending the range to them, we had an order from Barney's. And within a week of it being in Barney's, Madonna had bought a pair of these pants, was wearing them at the MTV Awards performing some song. So, you know, what that taught me is just throw yourself in there. Just get just on with it. it. Just do it. Mm. And it's not going to be perfect. But it's not going to be perfect if you don't do it either. Is that something you've found, Brienne, in the growth of Atik? And, I mean, the, the, the doors in America especially? Yeah, I mean, I have. I feel like I never have any idea what I'm doing or any business being where I am, largely, um, because I've never felt ready for anything in my life. But, I mean, there's, there's a story I tell all the time how um, I did an interview for a Forbes reporter. She, it was reprinted um, in the Huffington Post and all of a sudden the world went bananas. It just goes to show you that the smallest of things can create this mammoth tidal wave and all of a sudden you're a little bit bigger than you anticipated and all of a sudden you're around the world. So, yeah, you do just have to give it a nudge because if you're, there's a saying, if you're not embarrassed about your first product, you launch too late. And I've always liked that because people will just go on and on and say, oh, it's not perfect, it's not perfect. And the question I always get is how did you start? I just did it. Yeah, just start. Did you have any preconceived notions about exporting? Did you think... I, I personally don't like that. Well, I didn't like the term exporting because it felt something I wasn't worthy of for a long, long time. Mm. Was anything like it or not like you thought it would no, be? No, we we completely learned on the job. You know, just way yeah, the freighting and duties and exchange rates and and yeah, all that stuff still changes. Yeah, you know, the change in the VAT into UK is like you know just last year. You know, every feels like every day there's a new challenge thrown at you. you know, the, yeah, the last two years know. in particular has been fun. Yeah, hey? yeah, oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I think, well, that's just, the, that's just being in business or just being a human. You just got to ha- have to be open to what's coming at you and, and prepared to ride the wave. Yeah, be adaptable. Mm. And I guess like a really kind of like key mm. partnership is like a partnership with a distributor who knows a market and knows, you know, the doors and can help be that thing. And I guess a good distributor can be a really great thing for your business and the wrong relationship can set you back a long way. Mm. How how do you navigate that world and um, what makes for a good distributor and what makes for a poor one? You've probably had more experience with distributors than I, so why don't you have a first crack at it? I have had the misfortune of both Great and appalling distributors, um, certainly more more in the former category. But it is values. It, look, we're a very la- values-led organisation, and I don't expect our partners to agree or be passionate about all of them, but one or two of them, or just the general gist of being fair and kind in business. I don't think it's too much to ask, and and actually sticking to it, not just saying it because it's it's window dressing. But also, they've got a the, the number one thing is they're passionate about your brand. The the difference when I think about the good ones versus the not so good is that they actually. I'm trying to think of a nice way to say gave a shit, but. To be frank, they did, you know. Um, they actually wanted us to succeed as much as we wanted us to succeed and that's what made the difference. And when it, we had a couple of distributors over over the years that um, talked nicely at the beginning and then actually didn't really care. And, yeah, unfortunately that ended in tears. Yours or theirs? I'd like to think theirs, but it might have been both. 
and it's quite it's quite a gnarly thing, hey, because you end up signing big agreements and it's a big kind of investment of time and energy as well. Yeah, and the rage you feel when uh, some people don't do what the bare minimum they said they were going to do, but it's a big investment of time, uh, a massive investment of, of resources. So it's if it goes wrong, it can be incredibly disruptive. I think the big danger for distributors is what they can or can't do to your brand. Mm. Um, because yeah, they're investing in the product themselves, and if their forecasts are off, and and their cash flows tight, they just want to clear it. So you may end up with a distributor who's wrecking your brand in that particular market, and you can't go you know you can't go back there. It's very hard to once somebody's messed with the brand, it's very hard to go back into that market. It takes decades generations to build a brand really and uh, if you've got a distributor like went oh we can sell a million dollars and then it turns out the market's just not that and they're dumping it in some warehouse sale like yikes that's not good and yeah distributors are ultimately if you get the wrong one it's all about the money not about the brand partnership you want a long-term thinker yeah yeah, I've seen before, Karen, that you've said that, you know, whenever something hasn't gone right in business, it was because you didn't listen to your gut. And so you always listen to your gut. Like, so, you know, is, is it kind of like as soon as you feel that a partnership's not going the right way, you know, how do you teach, how do you kind of like give yourself permission to listen to your gut earlier? Because I guess it's so hard when you've got so many things kind of flowing in one direction. If there is that that, that voice inside, it can be hard to kind of pay attention to it or give it its, um, give it its true respect. Yeah, but if you ignore it, sooner or later it's going to make you listen to it. <laughs> it's always right. It can be really hard, uh, particularly I found it as an experienced business person, you're surrounded by people saying, hey, 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 you should do this, it's great. And inside I'm like, oh, I don't like it, I don't feel good. And whenever I've ignored that gut instinct, you're dead right, it's always gone wrong. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it can be hard to speak up and say, nope, not going to do it. So, yeah, I think the, right. the further into your business you get, you know, the more confidence you get, you know, I think if you're at a stage in your business where you still own it, you've built your brand, you've built your business, you've got money in the bank and nothing left to prove. Good position to be in. Yeah, that's quite nice. Yeah, so, <laughs> so think like that earlier, back your gut. Yeah, listen to it. And what are some things that you've found are really different in terms of selling to these markets? Because I imagine there's things that are kind of like consistent in how you talk to the world. But yeah, what kind of things have you found in different markets were really different? Main differences I've always found was in the 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 attitude, the, the how you show up, uh, you know, within the culture. And so yeah, I would always go out into the world with my intrinsically New Zealand kind of outlook to life, sort of pragmatic and just get on with it and self-deprecating. But just you have to go with that. You, know, you can't pretend to be something you're not. Or then Where's the fun? you just got to go and be yourself and have some fun with it. And if they don't like it, that's fine. If they do, then that's fine. And, and just get on with it. And do you like the clothes? <laughs> yeah, the self-deprecating humour that we have doesn't translate in every market. Some people take you really literally and think, oh, gosh, really? <laughs> Going global is hard. So what help have you actually had to help you do that? A lot of it's been just getting out there and rolling your sleeves up and making connections and asking questions and being open about not knowing everything in market, trusting other people who know more about, you know, whether it's an agent or a distributor or what have you, or a store, or, uh, just asking questions constantly. 
Um, we have worked with NZTE here in New Zealand um, on and off over the years, and certainly in the last couple of years, they've been really fantastic to work with. We've had a lot of guidance from them. You know, they've got um, all their beachhead advisors and different people who are experts in different areas. Um, they've got a lot of expertise around um, around dot com, around digital marketing, and all sorts of areas. They've been really good. And uh, yeah, I'd encourage anybody in, in any country to reach out to whoever their government organisation is. I'm sure most countries have a, have a similar. Um, and uh, yeah, just show up and ask questions. People are normally pretty good about sharing their wisdom. Mm. Most people want to help. Most people want to help, yeah. Some people will give you terrible advice, but at least they're trying. This is a multi-million dollar question. What's your key to success, offshore markets? If you could give, you know, what would be the one thing you'd put it down to? I think it's just creativity, you know, that solves everything mm. in, the, in the product and the approach and the attitude, just being questioning and bringing your best creativity to every layer of the business. And show up, just go there, see it. Sort of along those same lines, is there anything you wish you'd known earlier? I would hazard a guess no, because you seem to leap in, give it a nudge and see what happens type of person. But Oh, no, God, if I could <laughs> go back in time with the, you know, right, my... Power of hindsight? Yeah. Oh, it'd be totally different. But I don't get to do that. So I don't regret anything, even the mistakes. You go, oh, well, you know, I learned something from it. Had a value to it. And maybe that led to something else. But, you know, one thing I'll never regret is just showing up and and giving it a go and and having fun. And we built a brand and we built a business. And I've got an address book full of fantastic friends and a memoir full of funny stories that will never be written. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should. You should think about it. <laughs> and that's been amazing. And I continue to love it every day. That's really cool. That's really nice. Mm. And as a final thought, what advice would you have for anyone thinking of starting out and going global? Well, there's no limit. It takes the limit away. There's kind of no limit. If you're going global and you've got a .com, like the ceiling's very high. It's going to take a long time before you've reached your capacity. And that's quite a nice place to be. Yeah, it's a big world. You get the scale. And yeah, for us, there's that emotional buzz of seeing your product in different places, seeing it going to different places. And as a creative, uh, as a brand owner, as a business owner, I love that I, as an idea. And, uh, and you get to just get in amongst it and see all these fantastic places and meet all these fantastic people. And, you know, it's a real buzz. Ah, that's so magic. Mm. Well, thank you for coming and sharing today your export journey. That's Karen Walker. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that was that was amazing. Uh, I love her attitude. It's, it, my favourite phrase is just do it, and it summed her up entirely. And I love the idea that, like, you should do it because it's really fun to go overseas and meet cool people (laughs) and, like, be able to, as a business expense, uh, explore and um, experience other cultures and things. Like, yeah, exporting is good. Yeah, because it's fun. And I I love that she comes from a place of creativity at all costs because the fashion industry can be a little bit copycatty and she is absolutely everything starts at creativity and that's a really nice way of being. And the intuition, like being like there's not necessarily a playbook for like how to get a good distributor or how to choose a partner. It's like if you wouldn't have them to dinner at your house, don't do it. Like, um, yeah, real human. That's awesome. I am going to steal that rule. 
Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you to Karen Walker for joining us today. Thank you to you, Brianne, to you for listening, the person whose ears we're in, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Tai Hei Butler. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and if you like what we're up to, rate and leave a review. Enohora. You've been listening to Going Global, brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. It was hosted by Brianne West and Simon Pound. It was produced by T.I. Hair Butler with content management by Rachel LaRue and series production by Jane Yee. Special thanks to our partnerships editorial team of Elisa Rivera, Alice Webler-Dahl and Simon Day. If you want to know how New Zealand Trade and Enterprise can help you take your business to the world, visit getthere.nz today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.